So, Miles. Rainfire. Jay, what is that dude's deal, anyway? Is he a mutant? Not exactly. What's not exactly a mutant? Okay, well, do you remember Gideon? The immortal external who murdered Sunspot's dad in a bid to take over the family business because he thought that Sunspot might be the next external. That's the one. He's Rainfire? No, 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 no. Gideon made Rainfire. So Rainfire is a clone? Not really. Rainfire is actually basically protoplasmic goo. He's got very fancy hair as protoplasmic goo goes. Plus Sunspot's blood. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 238 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And we are recording this um, somewhat earlier, but you are listening to it right on the heels of Emerald City Comic Con, which is coming up fast. And you should come see us there if you can. It is in Seattle. It is March 14th through 17th. 15th through 17th? 14th through 17th. And uh, we will be there all weekend. We're going to be an Artist's Alley. We've got a panel. It's a live show. It's on Saturday at 6.30 p.m. And it's going to feature Vida Ayala, Sean and McGuire, and Leah Williams and be followed immediately by our annual party, which this year is our very early fifth birthday party at Phoenix Comics. There will be pie. There will be pie. And there will be us and there will be you. And we would totally love to see you. We, we love seeing people at conventions. It's rad as hell. Uh, we're also, oh, we also have some new stuff that we're going to have there. We are going to have the Lila Cheney t-shirt for the first time at conventions. And I should say while I'm talking about our merch that we've also got a bunch of new stuff in our Tee Public um, shop, including finally something with Shatterstar on it, which is germane to this episode, um, because I have strong feelings about Queen's superheroes. And yeah, we'll, we'll stick a link to that um, in the visual companion to this episode. It's pretty great. I'm looking forward to wearing my version of that shirt, even though I am very far away from Queen's. I can still represent. You live there, Jay. Yeah, it works. Speaking of Shatterstar, this is this is going to be the episode where I just have feelings about Shatterstar all over the place. Yeah, I was looking at your notes, and you made some really good points that I hadn't even considered. I mean, I like Shatterstar more these days, especially since a surprising quantity of our listeners are really, really into him. But uh, yeah, we're going to have some interesting things to discuss. Well, and now I'm getting why, because... I hadn't read a ton of early X-Force. Well, I guess we're, we're sort, of, sort of in mid-X-Force now. It's in the mid-20s. But he, like Cable, he goes from basically being a dude with a cool and very dated design and some ludicrous weapons to just this incredibly inter interesting, nuanced, and I think sympathetic character. Again, Fabian Nicesa is just, he's pure magic. Pretty much, yeah. So we'll be talking about some X-Force. We'll also be talking about some uncanny X-Men. Which one do you want to start with, Jay? So remember how we've been mentioning over the course of our Fatal Attractions coverage that the Order got all messed up with that? Um, yeah, so here is where, after covering all of Fatal Attractions in Order, we cover some issues that came out in the middle of it but that weren't technically part of the event. Exactly. If you were reading it at the time, it made much more sense. But for now, you'll just have to take our word that Magneto has come to Earth and interrupted a funeral, but Wolverine hasn't been de-adamantiumed yet. That's roughly where all of these issues take place. Yeah, this is after he rips out Cable's cybernetics, but before he rips out Wolverine's skeleton. Or thereabouts. It's a little bit ambiguous, at least for X-Force. Right. Well, it's less ambiguous than that it doesn't matter, because the Wolverine thing just doesn't come up in the course of X-Force. All we know is that it's after he's he's ripped out Cable Cybernetics. So, X-Force is kind of a quiet, standalone-ish story. X-Men sows the seeds for some larger stuff that's going to be coming later. Let's maybe, you want to do X-Force first, since that's kind of in a bubble? Sounds like a plan, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what's going on in X-Force right now. All right, so I mentioned that Cable is there. Cable has returned recently from his apparent death and came clean to the team about a bunch of the stuff he'd been keeping secret. They talk about feelings now, and it's great. However, their joyous reunion was interrupted by fatal attractions, during which Cable got most of his techno-organic parts ripped out by Magneto. He's been comatose ever since. 
Who else? Who else have we got? Who else is at Camp Verde on the team these days? Well, we have eight other members of X-Force. This is a big team, although perhaps not coincidentally, New Mutants during its heyday had nine members too. We have a member of both of those teams, Cannonball, Sam Guthrie. He'd been leading the team while Cable was gone. Also, these days, he's apparently immortal. So that's a thing. Uh, we've also got the other one of the OG New Mutants who's graduated to X-Force. That is Sunspot Cannonball's BFF, who is now finally out from under the thumb of Gideon and his sinister ponytail. And of course, we have Boom Boom, Tabitha Smith. Now she's going by Boomer, but I don't know about you, Jay. I'm just going to keep calling her Boom Boom. Yeah, the name transition is is never entirely clear. Like, people just sort of start calling her Boomer. Um, I, I feel a little bit bad, but she also did go back to Boom Boom, so I don't know, man. For a while, she was Meltdown. That's way too serious. No, I think that's kind of awesome. She was named after arguably the best X-Men-related miniseries ever published. Okay, well, there is that. We also have Richter. That's Julio Richter. And along with Boom Boom, that those are the, the last two of the second-generation New Mutants. Richter's more okay working with Cable now that he knows it was Strife, not Cable, that killed Richter's dad. Of our later characters, we have Warpath, James Proudstar. He lost his entire family when his reservation at Camp Verde was slaughtered by maybe the Hellfire Club? That really hasn't been addressed in quite a while. Anyway, the team is living there now, and this is, this is Warpath, who is the younger brother of the first Thunderbird, who's also a former Hellion. And then we have Siren, Teresa Rourke Cassidy. Hey, she's Banshee's daughter. And she's on the team, fresh from being possessed by the Shadow King on Muir Island. Next up is my improbable favorite, Shatterstar Gavidra 7. He is an improbably armed Mojo World exile. He's, I think he's technically Longshot and Dazzler's kid, and he's bad at person stuff. Hooray! And then we have Maria Kaya Santos, Feral. She's a cat lady, and she will murder you if you fuck with her pigeons. Or just, you know, for no reason. She's also trying to uh, make shatty buns happen, which I fully support. I disagree profoundly. Uh, other recent relevant events. The big one, obviously, is the death of Ileana Rasputin, the de-aged former teammate and friend of several of these kids. She was on the New Mutants with, with a number of them. And some of their other former teammates still don't know that she's dead. Yikes. And that brings us to X-Force number 26, Shadows on the Rock. This is written by Fabian Neceza, penciled by Matt Broom, inked by Bud LaRosa and Scott Hanna, and colored by George Russos. Hey, Greg Capullo's gone. He was only the regular penciler for like a year, and I miss him, especially because Matt Broom draws very troubling jaws on all the male characters. Yeah, he kind of does, but I, I feel like what you mostly need to be able to draw well to cover X-Force is ripped jean shorts, and he's okay on those. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I gotta say, I feel weird covering this issue because my first and strongest impulse is just to readers theater the whole thing. This is a really, really, really strong issue. I gotta admit that is tempting with a lot of Nisieza's comics, but let's see if we could err on the side of explaining with, you know, some quotes. Well, I, I was going to say my, my backup plan was, was just to wail the word feelings for about 20 minutes, but I, I guess explanation is probably the way to go. Anyway, this issue takes place before Excalibur number 71. Cable is still comatose post-Magneto encounter. And this feels appropriate that we start with, with Cable back out of the scene again, because this is very much part of Cable's return and redirection as the leader of X-Force and, and the reintroduction of a kinder and more thoughtful Cable. And, man, you know, I, I, I mentioned Niseza before in, in context of, of Shatterstar, but what he's done with Cable never fails to floor me. This is a character who showed up as yelling large gunman with very few other distinguishing characteristics. And Niseza has basically spent his tenure on this book giving Cable just a stunning degree of nuance. Yeah, and I really appreciate that after the big events of X-Force number 25, after Cable's return, we get a quiet issue that not only is a chance for Cable to interact with the team he's reunited with, but also is a chance for us to get inside the head of Cable. Because very conveniently, Cable now has Professor, the sentient AI that used to be ship, inside his head or inside his cybernetics. Or anyway, he, the point is he can have internal monologues that we get to see as captions 
he can have those as dialogues with Professor. It's a great narrative tool as we get back in this guy's head. Yeah, it's a terrific vehicle for an unreliable narrator, too, because we not only get Cable's perspectives, but we get Professor's counterpoints and challenges to them. And so this this leads leads to a question, because Cable's kind of going through the members of his team and thinking about them. Is is Professor essentially what, what Cable has in the same vein of uh, as a Strife's burn book? Yeah, or uh, the super villain trading cards that Squirrel Girl got from Deadpool. Actually, you know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking Professor is actually probably more likely to have a burn book, because Professor is probably the snarkier of the two. I think so. I mean, he's the equivalent of, like, you know, your your, your snarky butler that sort of judges everybody in the background. Do you remember, um, was it Miles or Niles from the old show The Nanny? You'd think I would remember this. I have never seen The Nanny, I'm sorry. Oh, well, as a kid that grew up Jewish and was very young when it came out, I enjoyed it then. I have no idea if it holds up. All I know about it, I've, well, I've, I've seen just enough of it um, that when I imagine our cat talking, it's with Fran Drescher's voice. God, that totally works. You're right. But somehow worse. Yeah, Bella is the worst. She's the best at being the worst. So anyway, back to X-Force. Um, Cable is self-repairing in a coma, and the team is having a really rough time with it because these kids have lost a lot. These are characters who, whose lives and whose experiences with as mutants and as X-Men have been really defined not only by loss, but by loss and apparently getting back what they've lost and then losing it again, like they just did with Ilyana. So in this case, they thought their mentor had died, they got him back, and now he's at death's door once again. Um, and they're all just sort of hovering around him and worrying, except for Farrell, who absolutely hates this shit. Can we, like, put in a Slurpee dispenser in here or something cool like that? And the rest of the team is not happy with her sarcasm, even though clearly she's just covering her own worry and pain with evil humor. Until Cable wakes up. It's all right. What flavor would you like? Aw, that's our Cable. That's also our Cable's sudden mustache, because check this out. So Cable lost his evil beard that turned out to be inspired by Strife, who was in the back of his head, in the first few issues of the Cable ongoing series. But in the panel that is a close-up of Cable saying what I just said, suddenly he has a white mustache that is gone by the next panel. Is it like a a sarcasm mustache? Or is he turning into an old-timey soda jerk at the mention of uh, of the Slurpee machines and stuff like that? Is he going to have like one of those paper hats and an apron? I don't know. Either way, the mustache's immediate loss is a clear waste because what I think we obviously should have had was a scene of him, you know, looking in the mirror and thinking about some things and then realizing suddenly that he looks a lot like Corsair. Oh, right. Then he would figure out who his granddad was. I love this plan. Exactly. For those of you who, who have forgotten who weren't along with the podcast, then um, this is how Cyclops figured out that he was related to Corsair. He, he was shaving after not shaving for a while and briefly had a mustache and noticed that he looked like Corsair. That's who I figured out who my dad was. I mean, that was one of many reasons. Anyway, Cable, once he is back up and about, spends a lot of the rest of the issue just sort of observing the team as they struggle to cope with all the shit they've been through. And, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot with New Mutants is that one of the hallmarks of a really great team book is that any given pair of characters on that team has a specific dynamic, and what we get across this issue is a lot of those in X-Force. Absolutely. And some are more common than others, certainly. Like, you don't really see, I don't know, Richter and Warpath having very many heart-to-hearts, but a surprising number of those dynamics are not just present, but incredibly well-realized. Yeah, absolutely. And incredibly interesting to see knowing where the characters are going to end up. Um, first, we get the two most familiar characters, Sam and Bobby. They head off to tell their former teammate, Shan's Karma, that Ileana is dead. Yeah, uh, hopefully it'll be more straightforward than uh, that time that Cannonball went to Nova Roma to tell Magma about the Hellions being dead, but we never actually find out. I don't think we ever see that scene. Man, do you think anyone ever tells Magma about Ileana? I, uh, I mean, probably eventually. Uh, maybe after Magma got literally crucified on the lawn of the Xavier School during Chuck Austin's run, as soon as she came to, they're like, by the way, we forgot to tell you, your friend's dead. Also, she's maybe back at this point, or maybe not yet, Miles doesn't remember. I mean, she'd been there for a while at that point, hadn't she? I don't know. It's, it's a confusing era. Anyway, Boom Boom, meanwhile, nopes out hard, and she and Sam have a brief conversation about how... 
much both of them are really struggling with the idea that Sam is now immortal, that he's going to have to watch everyone around him die. Um, it's something neither of them is really ready to deal with at this point. However, Richter is ready to take the opportunity to kiss Boom Boom because his life isn't complicated. And he also apparently is not good at reading signals or remembering consent because she basically says, dude, I'm not with you anymore. I'm with Sam. What is up? And I do love how just troubled and dark Richter is in this period. He doesn't really know what his role is with his team. Now Cable's back. It turned out Cable didn't kill his dad. And so he just basically runs around acting like an asshole the whole time. And I think that's very in character. Yeah, Richter feels like he's kind of very violently echolocating. He's trying to come up with some kind of sense of security and some kind of sense of where things stand by throwing himself at them really hard. So one thing I want to point out about Shatty Bun's Miles, workout Miles, here, no, stop, stop trying to make it happen. Make Shatty Bun's happen. I will not. But Shatty Bun's workout gear appears to be basically a spandex pair of lederhosen that say X gear along one leg. Like, uh, when I start running again this summer, like I have winter running gear, I don't have any summer running gear. Where can I get this stuff? Where can I get this phenomenal outfit? Okay, they're not, they're not lederhosen. They're spandex shorts with suspenders basically potato potato no lederhosen are, are, are a specific garment spandex shorts aside to cable shatterstar is kind of emblematic of a lot of cable's own problems um like trading humanity for martial perfection and encouraging kids to do the same and cable asks himself what good comes of having a unit of perfect fighting machines if they're all hollow all empty inside. Cable's assumptions about Shatterstar and his reconsideration of some of those assumptions are a really lovely gentle arc in this issue, and I think in a lot of ways probably parallel a lot of readers' experiences with it. Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree. Well, even though Farrell doesn't approach the object of her affection, Siren is approaching a lot of people right now because she is very drunk and, um flirts with Shatterstar and kisses Cable and falls over. And she kisses Cable just as Warpath arrives. And the two of them had been getting tentatively involved. I should say um, Siren and Warpath, not either of them and Cable. Uh, right, yes. Cable sort of is doing his own thing. He's having internal makeouts with Professor. No, that'd be weird. But yeah, Warpath points out as Siren just passes out that Siren has been drinking a lot lately. And we find out, too, that Warpath is the only one who knows, and he won't try to stop her. If I confront her about her problem, she may ignore it, ignore me, cut me off completely. This way, at least, I get to help her out, even if it's just a little bit. And I have so much sympathy for Warpath here. I mean, I'm not saying this is the right call at all, but I get it. He just wants to be connected to Siren any way he can, and he's worried that if he actually tries to help her, then that connection won't exist anymore. It's so unhealthy and it's so believable. And it's it's a moment that hits Cable hard, too, um, just in terms of his own responsibility for the situation. I've been blind, Professor. No, worse. I've been ignorant. I did see all of this coming. Actually, in many ways, I caused much of this to happen. I purposefully recruited a unit of young, confused, haunted, and emotionally wounded mutants. The better to forge them into a hard-edged fighting unit. Ignoring, all along, their needs, their desires, their hopes and dreams, just like I've ignored mine. So, contradictory as it may sound, you wanted them to become younger versions of yourself, though you knew how miserable that would make them? Yes. No, I, I don't know, but I do know it's time to put on the brakes. Now, we mentioned that a lot of the character moments we get here, and a lot of Cable's observation comes through moments of brief interaction and, and brief pairings of the characters. And the most commonly recurring character in those moments is Shatterstar, who's probably the least developed of the team so far. And I mentioned having a lot of Shatterstar feelings with this issue, and it... This, this whole issue, this, this, this kind of hit me like a brick to the chest because the extent to which Shatterstar feels like the incredibly specific experience of being an autistic kid who hasn't quite figured out yet how differently you think from the people around you is really jarring, if that's an experience you've had. It's, it's, 
incredibly on the nose. And I didn't make that connection at all. I mean, likely because that's not an experience I've had, but I can see that. Like, whether that was intentional or not, I don't know, but that parallel does work, and I'm glad that that parallel is there as a paper mirror for people who would find it useful and helpful. Yeah, and there's there's a moment that comes a little later that is an unbelievably good wrap to that, but we'll get there shortly, because after avoiding Siren, Shatterstar heads off and asks Warpath why he persists in making himself miserable. One of the things that makes Shatterstar a really good vehicle for other characters to engage in personal exposition is that he asks a lot of questions that for most people who grew up on Earth would be either taboo or, ob or obvious. In this case, you know, why Warpath persists in making himself miserable. I don't know. I guess unhappiness is all I really know. So I'm happy when I'm unhappy. You too, huh? Quite honestly, I have never given it that much thought. What do you give thought to? Things I can control. My body, my strength, my skills. Star, if all you have is yourself, then you don't really have all that much at all. Better, James, than wanting more than you have and getting nothing in return. And Cable's commentary on this is... is pretty cruel. You can't say Shatterstar built a wall around himself to shelter his emotions, because chances are very good he never had any emotions to begin with. Yeah, remember what I said about Shatterstar reflecting the, the social experiences of a lot of autistic people? That. Yeah, Cable's still got a lot to learn here. Well, he does. That's the great thing about this issue. Um, and that starts in the following scene where where Shatterstar sits down next to Richter, who's watching TV, and Shatterstar picks up the remote, changes channels continuously as Richter gets angrier and angrier and angrier, and then responds to Richter's frustration with genuine bafflement. Why would you ever wish to watch just one station when you can watch them all? Well, Richter storms out. Remember, this is way before either of them is dating or even thinking about it. And so we're left with a couple of interesting parallel counterparts. Yeah, we've got Shatterstar still clicking through the channels, now a little bit baffled and hurt, and Cable trying to figure out what to do. The images rush in front of me, becoming a seamless blur, and I watch them, like I've watched my entire life, a ride around the time stream, making occasional stops at different stations, knowing who the people are but never knowing anything about them. That has to stop. Like I said, time to hit the brakes, but can I do it? Can I be a soldier, a teacher, a father, and a friend? Xavier couldn't. Neither could Magneto. I don't know if I can either. But one thing I do know, I know that I can start to try. Part of the tragedy of both Xavier and Magneto as leaders is that neither of them can get past their own issues and ego to have the degree of self-awareness it would take to realize their ambitions and their goals and their hopes as leaders. And seeing Cable ask these questions feels so significant. And I think that's something that's very much unique to the Cable that has returned, to honestly the Cable after the Blood and Metal miniseries. For me, that miniseries is where this change begins, because Cable does something that neither Xavier or Magneto did. Yeah, he changes his relationship to his students. He accepts that his previous way of interacting with them isn't working, and so he just starts fresh. Like he said when he had that big fight with Magneto in X-Force number 25, they're not following him anymore. He's following them. He's humble. He's open. Well, and he changes in a way that's something that Magneto and Xavier could never quite bring themselves to do, which is meeting them where they are. And what he does in this case is tinker around a little bit and add a setting to the remote that'll automatically flip channels every three seconds and he gives it to Shatterstar because that's that's the rate at which Shatterstar is changing channels and I almost cried at that like I'm I'm not joking like this is the kindest thing the looking at that and not really understanding it and not really identifying with it and yet still just sort of appreciating that this is how Shatterstar interacts with things. Yeah, to bounce off what you just said about Cable's relationship with the team, Cable is meeting Shatterstar where Shatterstar is. And yeah, that's huge. That is, Cable's arc of understanding with Shatterstar specifically in this issue is again a really good object lesson to take away 
in terms of the experiences of and and kind of hopes in terms of of peers and and you know leadership figures that i think a lot of autistic people really struggle with well meanwhile in super prison god that's a new meanwhile in france isn't it um a large, absurd man named Rainfire breaks the MLF out, um, introducing each of them as he does. And we'll just do a couple of our favorites here. Heather Tucker, called Tempo. Your ability to warp time to suit your needs has not helped you from doing time, has it? Pantu Hurageb, the Reaper, whose neural paralyzing scythe has most certainly reaped what you have sown. I feel like he's... Just straight up doing supervillain things here. He kind of is. He actually reminds me a lot of um, the Sphinx from Mystery Men, who says all these like witty, semi-profound things that don't actually mean a goddamn thing. Yeah, that scans. Um, and and what what Rainfire wants to do now that he's got the MLF is to find Henry Peter Gyrick and uh, flay him alive, which is a reasonable MLF goal, but. More importantly, Rainfire is ridiculous. He's got a big gold Mr. Sinister-style cape and a big gold mask and big gold boots, and he's got something whose handle is protruding from behind his back, and I'm not sure what it is, but my money is definitely on an electric guitar. Having just finally seen Mandy, I'm going to go for Heavy Metal Battle Axe, but either's reasonable. Yeah, okay. And as you heard in the cold open, Rainfire's history is, shall we say, complicated. But I have such vivid memories of talking to my friends on the playground as these issues were coming out, trying to figure what the hell his deal was. Like, was he connected to Sunspot? Wasn't he connected to Sunspot? Sunspot was right there. How was this going on? He had the same kind of silhouette thing. It was actually a really fun mystery, even if it ended up not making a ton of sense. X-Men! X-Men. And speaking of X-Men, let's cover some issues of Uncanny X-Men. Okay. X-Men. Previously on X-Men. Ileana Rasputin, Colossus's kid sister with a complicated past, died of the mutant AIDS allegory, the Legacy Virus. And like we said earlier, Magneto interrupted her funeral to yell about the X-Men being idealistic fools and to almost drop a space station on Westchester County. Miss Manners would disapprove. And a whole lot happened after that with the whole Wolverine adamantium deal to Professor X uh, destroying Magneto's mind. Like we said, that hasn't happened yet. We're going a little bit back in time. They don't go back in time in the comics. We're just looking at some stuff in the comics that happened before that. Right. So a while before the funeral, and almost as awkwardly, on again, off again, X-Man Forge proposed to almost always on X-Man Storm. And then said mean things and left the X-Mansion because he was so sure that Storm would say no. She was going to say yes. Dodged a bullet there, Storm. And a long while before that, and much more awkwardly, Archangel's college buddy Cameron Hodge manipulated the original five X-Men into making public opinion of mutants even worse, arranged for Warren to have his wings amputated, which led to Warren getting rebuilt into the dangerously bladed and very emo Archangel, and killed Warren's longtime girlfriend, Candy Southern. There was probably a tax evasion scam in there somewhere, but the comics didn't cover it. Still... I want to believe. Warren decapitated Cameron Hodge as revenge, but in the words of Ossie Davis's rendition of John F. Kennedy from the film Bubba Hotep, Shit, that ain't gonna stop him. So let's talk about Uncanny X-Men number 305, The Measure of the Man. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Jan Dersima, inked by Jose Marzen Jr., and colored by Joe Rosas. This takes place again before X-Men 25, that's the Fatal Attractions issue of X-Men, as does Uncanny X-Men 306. So we start out as Iceman goes to his girlfriend Opal Tanaka's house in Montclair, New Jersey to say hi, and just as she opens the door, everyone's attacked by a bunch of silent Judge Dredd-looking dudes. And as it turns out, he actually wasn't there to say hi. Cerebro detected quote-unquote genetic anomalies near her house, so rather than worry Opal... Iceman decided it would be cool to just use her as bait and, you know, show up just in case. Opal is not pleased. Let me guess, Professor Xavier, Storm, and Cyclops were all out tonight? Because only you could have thought of a plan this, this insensitive. Yeah, she's got your number, Bobby. I love Iceman, they probably shouldn't let him make big decisions. Or even medium-sized ones at this point. Yeah, yeah, maybe later, but not now. Now, Bishop and Rogue are there for backup, and they fight these Judge Dredd-looking goons, and with single blows and blasts, these dudes just explode into basically pink, bubblegum-looking goo. It's extremely gross, and I assume extremely sticky. 
Oh, yeah, seriously. And Opal is just so over this, but also all of this, all of this superhero nonsense. I mean, she saw her other lover, or at least potential lover, Hero, back in that whole cybernetic samurai deal get killed due to superhero nonsense, and now Iceman's bringing it literally to her front door, so she basically says, the hell with this, and breaks up with Iceman, and we are not going to see Opal Tanaka until the 2001 Iceman miniseries. That's the Iceman miniseries that doesn't feature him hanging out with and fighting the concept of Oblivion. Alas. Alas. Yeah, no, never forget that the entire 616 universe was recreated from scratch by Bobby Drake in a tiny miniseries. Hooray! Well, in this series, there's only one Judge Dredd dude left, and so since they keep disintegrating and they don't have any telepaths around to read their mind, Rogue figures, all right, I'll take off my glove, I'll touch this guy, I'll see what's going on. And this is a bad plan. This is a super bad plan. Not only does he blow up anyway, but she turns into a what looks like a particularly gooey version of Celine in Fitzroy's spooling machine from Uncanny X-Men 301. She is all bubblegum, and she's not just bubblegum. She's like, she's like bubble tape. I think what it is is that Jan Dursima, since she's filling in for John Romita Jr., she has to prove that she can also draw ribbons of flesh, a surprisingly common recurring visual motif in this era. What the fuck, mid-1990s? Oh, that's a, that applies to so many situations, what you just said. It's true. But thankfully, Bishop manages to use his energy-absorbing powers to short out Rogue's powers when he touches her skin to skin. Let's just go with it. And Rogue goes back to normal. Well, I think specifically she, he, he does that, but also she partially absorbs his memories, and that overwrites some of the, the you know, weird flesh ribbon guy. And Rogue, you know, gets sort of a new understanding of, of where Bishop's coming from, which is really cool. I like it, yeah, because, I mean, she didn't like him at all at first. He kept trying to murder Gambit, and Rogue's rather fond of Gambit. So, you know, it's nice to see them clicking a little better. But we, we learn what Rogue has learned from the soldiers she touched. They were basically just skin stuffed into armor. Ew! That's horrifying. Right? Um, and they were they were sort of inhuman, but not capital I inhuman, just just non-human. Auto automatons who most whose thoughts mostly just came down to one word. Hodge. You know, when I'm at work, the only word I think of is Gary, who's my boss. Um, I gotta say I like him way better than I like Cameron Hodge. I wouldn't want to work for Cameron Hodge. Oh yeah, Gary is great. As far as I know, Gary has never become the genocidal techno-organic dictator of an island nation. I mean, I don't really know what he did before he worked at my company. It's hard to say. But anyway, uh, yeah, Cameron fucking Hodge. And I gotta say, Cameron Hodge legitimately terrifies me, but he's also one of my favorite X-Men villains, and I am so excited to see him back, and he's gonna be a real big deal very soon. Oh yeah, this is, this is sowing the seeds for the Phalanx Covenant. Sure is. Meanwhile, though, in Washington, D.C., Professor Xavier and Storm are meeting with a mover-slash-shaker named Louis St. Croix. Um, and clearly this is a stage name because it's very obvious from the illustration that he's actually Mark Twain. He looks like Mark Twain with a ponytail, which I gotta say, when I get old, I have two potential ideas. Either I'm just gonna grow the hair and beard out infinitely once they're fully white and just go full wizard, or I'm gonna do like this guy and have a white ponytail and a white mustache. He looks quite striking. Okay, this is also a perfectly valid wizard look. I, I, you know, I thought about this, and I thought, you know, while the full beard is traditional, no one would ever disbelieve that Sam Elliott was a wizard, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. You could be a cowboy and a wizard simultaneously. I think, honestly, think the phrase cowboy wizard, it's the best summation of Sam Elliott that I've heard. So clearly this guy may in fact be a wizard. And Samuel Clemens. So Sam Elliott played Lee Scoresby in the movie of The Golden Compass, and now the BBC is doing a miniseries, and now Scoresby is played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and that is a hell of a collection of actors to play that character. No, that actually kind of works for me, because... While they're very different guys, they've they've got a certain gentle wryness in common that works very well for that specific character. Yeah, I'm really excited about that miniseries. I hope it's good. But anyway, this cowboy wizard, or not, uh, Mr. St. Croix, yeah, if you 
recognize that last name, it's because he is, in fact, Monet's grandfather. Yes, I know he's white. It turns out uh, ethnicity can can do that. You know, it mixes around and stuff. If you recognize that name entirely from the seltzer brand, I guess take a drink of it? No, then it would be Louis St. Croix. What? That's literally how you pronounce it. It's LaCroix. That's the official pronunciation. I looked it up. What the hell is wrong with people? <laughs> so much. Anyway, point is, Mr. LaCroix is part of Xavier's mutant underground that's been referenced a little bit lately. And since Xavier's come to meet him in person, which is very rare, they try to keep things pretty hush-hush, uh, St. Croix wonders whether Xavier is ready to come out as a mutant. Xavier's answer is interesting. If I thought I could do more as a mutant, instead of posing as a human, I would do so in a second. The political climate in this country being what it is, however, I feel my anonymity is paramount for the moment. And on the one hand, I do see where Xavier is coming from. He can do a lot of good work without people immediately hating him when they see him. On the other hand, though, I mean, uh, solidarity, bro. You could also do a lot of good work if you just said, hey, I'm an awesome, respected geneticist, and guess what? I'm a mutant. Yeah, if Xavier has a built-in weakness, and I, I think the thing that pushes him into villain territory when things do, it's that he is incredibly, incredibly good at rationalizing convenience. That is a very good way of putting it, and I agree. Something that stuck out to me in this issue, and I don't know why it stuck out in this issue, because it happens all the time in X-Men, and I really hate it, is older men calling adult women child. Yeah, St. Croix does that to Aurora, and, uh, I don't know, Aurora's regal as fuck, you don't call her child. Yeah, no, no. Not even if you're Mark Twain and a wizard. <laughs> well, Storm's not done getting disrespected, because Xavier, after this, pressures her into stealing the plans for that anti-Magneto suit from, from X-Men Unlimited number two. I really appreciate how furious she is about this. She does it, and she hates it, and she basically tells him that she will fight for the X-Men, she will give herself, give her all to that, but she will not steal for him again, and he can fuck right off. Yeah, and here we do see Xavier just getting sort of darker and darker in between Uncanny X-Men 304 and the big move he makes of erasing, erasing Magneto's mind in X-Men number 25. I like that progression. Storm also wonders whether the reason she joined the X-Men in the first place was a subconscious psychic suggestion that he planted back when he met her when she was a thief on the streets before he fought the Shadow King. It's a whole thing. But I like the idea that Storm is dedicated to the dream and less and less dedicated to Charles Xavier himself. That's a motif we're going to see again and again with the original X-Men. Um, not only the questioning of how much of their motives in joining the team were their own, but ultimately dedicating themselves to the X-Men, to the dream, or to mutants in general, and questioning the dream in that context as they grow up. And it's it's a an ongoing sort of painful and fairly well-realized process for a number of the first couple generations of students. Totally. But Jay, so you mentioned that Storm says she's never going to steal for Xavier again. So she does uh, steal the five and a quarter inch floppy that the plot that the plans are apparently on. But there's going to be one more thing she steals for the X-Men. No, you're absolutely right. They steal. Dra she and Gambit will eventually team up and steal Dracula's head headless corpse. But she doesn't do that for Xavier. So that's fine. That is that is totally in keeping with her declaration here. But you forgot the most important part. Do you remember where Storm and Gambit steal the corpse from? Yeah, yeah, the, the greatest vacation destination ever, Vampire Island. I have so much love for Curse of the Mutants. It's the best worst story. Oh god, I know. The number of people I've told in the last, you know, 12 hours to follow their hearts. Actually, probably only like two, but still. Comes up. Right? Well, let's move from there to Uncanny X-Men number 306, Mortal Coils. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled, once again, by John Romita Jr., inked by Dan Green, and colored by Steve Buccolato. I feel so cheated that the Serpent Squad isn't in this. Oh, because it says coils. Yeah. They do like their puns. Yeah. Well, what I remember from this issue most of all is the cover, which is Archangel facing down a Portasio-teched Cameron 
fucking Hodge. Like, even as a kid with sort of spotty all over the place X-Men knowledge, I knew how bad this was. I knew how terrifying Hodge was and what a big deal his return was going to be. Yeah, Hodge is easy to sort of blow off as ridiculous if you don't have this context. And actually, I'm going to put some of the um, some of the previous Hodge episodes in the as mentioned, because this guy has been built up as a villain for so long and so effectively. He is legitimately a really, really scary opponent. And honestly, he's come closer to destroying more of the X-Men, I think, than almost any other character. Yeah. But for now, we were just talking about Storm. Let's see what she's up to. She's actually in the West Village, and she is spectacularly dressed. She has this long white coat, this orange dress and matching hat, this dangly gold jewelry. Storm just looks amazing in, like, every one of her outfits. As she should. And she is in the West Village to meet Forge for a date. He's invited her out. And he apologizes for all the shitty things that he said last time. It's about damn time, dude. Yeah, I was going to say, as he fucking should. And they are just sort of starting to feel out their dynamic again. And to, to sort of feel out whether they can become friends. And it's really nice. Well, it's also really nice to see a character fuck up thoroughly. And... Honestly, it's almost parallel to the Cable stuff we were talking about. Both Cable and Forge realized that the ways they were interacting with the people they cared about were destructive, and they let their ego go for a minute, took a breath, and tried to fix the mistakes they made. So good on both of them. Maybe that's why Cable grew that mustache in that one panel, because he suddenly had something in common with Forge. Well, they don't just try to fix the mistakes they made, and I think that's important. They try to own the mistakes they made, but also they don't try to just fix things back to the way they were. They try to, you know, rebuild with the context of what they've messed up and, you know, to to go about it responsibly and compassionately. And I really dig that. I do too, especially because I enjoy Forge, and when he's a horrible, unrepentant asshole, it makes me sad. So I'm glad he's not right now. Yay. But the most heartwarming pair of characters in this issue, that would have to be Archangel and Jean Grey. They're flying together over the Colorado Rockies, like, joking and flirting. And their bright, colorful costumes against the open, bright sky are just such a welcome visual oasis for a scene that is also a welcome character-based psychological oasis. This is just a couple of adults who grew up as teenagers together and have a ton of shared history and weren't always great to each other, but are now just friends they're now just having fun and it's so wonderful to see yeah they very explicitly describe themselves as as best friends and we learn a little bit about their romantic history things like warren telling gene that he was in love with her at their at their school prom how did that even work i guess um well it was really heteronormative back in the 60s so maybe everybody just like waited in line to dance with gene well we know scott didn't because they mentioned that he spent the the prom learning to take cerebro apart and put it back together maybe they're just really confused about what proms are maybe but uh anyway yeah when warren um explained why he was into gene he said it because it was because she was anatomically correct which is such a warren worthington thing to do warren kenneth worthington the third you are just like a hawk okay that's really weird. Like, I realize that it's a dumb 16-year-old crass pickup line, but it actually also doesn't make sense because this is, you know, in contrast to whom or what. Um, his collection of sex dolls that he used his family's wealth to buy, maybe? Although I guess they would be anatomically correct because they'd be sex dolls. His um collection of uh, G-rated sex dolls? I don't know. I'm pretty sure if they're G-rated, they're not sex dolls. I mean... Depends on how you market them, I guess. Well, they cease to be G-rated at that point, then. No. They could call them sexy dolls. That could still be G-rated. Yeah, I think that's pretty solidly PG-13. No. This is complicated. Warren, what do you mean, you goddamn hawk? Uh, Speaking of amazing Warren moments, there's a bit where Jean is talking about how she's been all over the galaxy, but his his home in the Colorado Rockies is, is the most gorgeous place she's ever seen. And Warren says in response... I sometimes forget I was given the greatest mutant power of them all, the gift of... And I honestly kind of expected him to finish with either wealth or privilege, but he said flight. (laughs) I don't think Warren's quite that self-aware. Well, once they get to the ground, Warren reminisces about the woman he really did love, that being Candy Southern, but she died one year ago today, because Marvel time is confusing and sliding, 
and presumably in honor of this anniversary, she wanders back in. What the hell? And everybody freaks out. Understandably. Yeah, Jean confirms that, okay, this woman at least is convinced she is Candy Southern and she looks just like her, but they telepathically go into Candy's memories to see what they can see, and what they see is her death in X-Factor number 34 when Cameron Hodge killed her, and her last memory was her life fading away as she watched Warren kill Hodge. She looks at Warren as she dies, and Warren's horrified because he realizes, crap, the last thing that she saw was me failing to save her and me murdering a dude. And eventually she's going to establish that, well, it was okay because what she was thinking about was that she was really grateful she'd had time with him at all and she, you know, loved him. And also I feel like watching someone murder Cameron Hodge is a pretty good way to go out if you're gonna. Yeah, that's true. But speaking of Cameron Hodge, as this mind probe continues, this like stringy gray flesh goo starts coming out through the seams in the walls. In the walls in Candy's mind or in the walls of, of the house? The physical walls of the house. Uh. And Warren recognizes a voice that's done in these rectangular yellow speech bubbles with sort of black dotted borders. Very, very technarch. And sure enough, it soon becomes clear. Cameron Hodge is literally right here oozing through the walls into the room. Cameron Hodge, remember, he has been decapitated. He has, once he was just a severed head on a robot, been slashed to pieces, crunched, optic blasted, and had an entire freaking skyscraper dropped on him. But Cameron Hodge, thanks to a deal he made with the demon Nastier, is literally immortal. And thanks to the techno-organic virus he got from Warlock's dad, Magus, is almost immensely, almost completely omnipotent. So, yeah, once again, we have everybody's favorite immortal alien cyborg bureaucrat back. Remember our roots? Boarding school buddies with visions of changing the world, making a difference? Okay, so you wanted to save the world from mutants and have them to cleanse it of the same? True! But no roommate situation is ever perfect! Now, as one techno-organic monster to another, can't you show a little professional courtesy? So one of the reasons I love Mr. Sinister is because he just always seems to be savoring everything he says. And Cameron Hodge is kind of like that, but there's also just this sharp layer of sadism under all of it. And I love Cameron Hodge as a villain for that. Well, the thing is, so Cameron Hodge is all bureaucrat villain initially. He is he is the guy who has, you know, color-coded, carefully indexed binders full of his evil plans. And as he falls apart, as he's killed and killed again and becomes less and less himself physically and incorporates parts of the techno-organic virus, he becomes weirder and weirder and more protean and more out of control. And that comes across in his personality, too. My favorite, favorite Cameron Hodge moment um, is in Extinction Agenda. And it's when he's this this just bizarre it's cyborg scorpion thing with his face and he's wearing a cardboard cutout of a business suit around his neck and it's just it's just brilliantly unhinged and so this is a hodge who's come through that and so he's he's got all of all of you know all of his precision but he's also missing a lot of screws that were there in the original model Oh, yeah. And Hodge doesn't say exactly how he's back or what he is now or how we can just ooze through the wall. But he does say that there are scores of beings like him who can pass as human, who can absorb anything from the environment to feed themselves, and whose goal is to kill all mutants. And sure enough, that's going to be the plot, like you referenced earlier, Jay, of the Phalanx Covenant crossover in really quite a while. And I love that we're reading the big bads from a future crossover now. I love that these seeds are being planted. It's very Claremontian. So well done, early 90s creative team. So as happens when Hodge shows up, Warren promptly attacks, um, rips Hodge apart with his wings. And, And Hodge slips for a second. And he does something that is even more unsettling, I think, than oozing through the walls, which is referring to himself as self. 
yeah, that thing we mentioned with the techno-organic virus that Hodge got from Magus, the thing that the phalanx are going to be based around, this is our first terrifying jinkies of a clue. And I love that it's just this subtle little reference that only readers familiar with the old stuff would catch, but the ones who did catch it would just ha have this holy crap moment. Well, we know that during Extinction Agenda, Hodge essentially cannibalized Warlock. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. All we know is that he used up the, the energy from Warlock, that he, he got something out of that. But we never really got a final conclusion to it. And yeah, this is our first really ghoulish hint of what actually happened. And speaking of ghoulish, as Hodge starts getting his ass kicked more and more by Warren's very, very sharp wings, all of a sudden Candy Southern, who's been sort of trying to keep out of the way, she goes all techno-organic. There are these circuits on her skin that come out, and Hodge points out, yeah, I brought her here as raw materials. I'm just going to use her to reconstruct myself, and that's where we realize, yeah, this definitely... Well, maybe it is Candy Southern, but she definitely is not alive. She is whatever Hodge is, whatever those soldiers were, or something like it. Yeah, it is so terrifically and viscerally gruesome. She starts literally ripping herself apart as metallic tubes and panels you know, emerge from her flesh. And, and yeah, and then this is, again, this is technology that's not like Cable's fairly rigid cyborg parts. Like, or actually maybe it's a little bit like Cable in, in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix when his TO virus goes out of control. But it's, it's, it's almost flesh-like. Yeah, and it's almost like a, a sci-fi zombie movie. And Jean points out that she's shutting down Candy's nerve endings, which she still has, so Candy can't feel what she's doing to herself. But it works. It's too much. Hodge begs her to stop tearing herself to pieces, but when she doesn't, it overloads him, and he fucking explodes. And I'm sure he's gone forever. I am so glad that Candy got this moment, because she was fantastic, and she went out like a chump, she totally got fridged. It was complete bullshit. And then she got to come back, however briefly, and take Hodge out herself. Feels significant, even if it was for a moment, even if people don't generally remember it. I'm really glad she got that. Exactly. She finally gets some agency. She gets to write the ending to her own story, and that is fucking huge. So, on that note, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, should they retcon Bishop's actions during the Messiah Saga? He didn't just try to murder a little girl, he methodically murdered billions of people in an alternate future for the sole purpose of making it easier for him to murder said little girl for something she might possibly do. You can't just sweep crimes of that magnitude under the rug and let him back on the X-Men. Should they reveal that it was actually a bishop from an alternate reality who did that, or that he was possessed? Well, I, I feel like this is fishing for a specific answer, and that's that's something that we we tend to, to you know, when, when questions do that, we tend to not end up putting him on the show but this is this is a really interesting one it is and yeah if you're not familiar um during messiah complex messiah war etc it ended up that bishop was chasing cable and hope through the time stream because cable thought that hope needed to stay alive for his dark future to not happen and bishop thought that hope needed to die for his dark future to not happen and yeah bishop killed a lot of people and he didn't really think of them as people because he was trying to rewrite the time stream and then they like wouldn't exist or they wouldn't have died in the first place or whatever. But still, he killed a lot of people. Yeah, morally questionable. Um, Questionable? Hell. Morally not okay. Morally not okay. All right. So I don't think that we should. And for the, the same reason that I don't think we should, you know, retcon Magneto to not have done the, the things that he did or cross the lines that he crossed. And I think that that's because, A, it's a comic book universe and actions exist in a different paradigm and have different consequences in that universe, but B, it's really narratively interesting. And ultimately for me, that's the, that's the, that's the deciding factor. The thing is, though, it hasn't really been addressed all that heavily other than Bishop, you know, realizing he was in the wrong and feeling remorse. Like, I'd actually remembered that he was possessed by the ghost owl and the demon bear at the time that he did those things. But no, it turned out that happened right after in the second Uncanny X-Force run. And so I guess the question I ask is, does that ruin the character? Is that a line so far that he's not allowed to be a hero anymore? And 
I really want Bishop to be a hero. He's one of my favorite X-Men, and so I'm glad he's back. But you just sort of have to, like, overlook that part. And so that's where I wonder if what the listener suggested might be a good idea, if you just retcon it so that he was possessed or it was somebody else. I don't know. It's a cop-out. It's narratively cheap. But it also makes it work to have Bishop be a hero again. And that's what I like about this question is there's no good answer. It's messy. It also raises a lot of questions about the ethics of timelines and the ethics of of time travel within them. And to what extent what Bishop does is more morally abhorrent than, for instance, attempting to cut off a future timeline that we know has developed. Yeah. And so, um, anonymous listeners, answer your question. I don't know. It's complicated, but I am glad that Bishop's back on the X-Men because Bishop is great, and they should probably address that whole uh, murder thing sometime. Yeah, my main hope is that whatever they do, it makes for a good story. Generic Genetically Gifted asks on Tumblr, Cyclops seems to have a thing for psychics. Why do you think? What are some pros and cons to dating a telepath? Okay, look, Generic Genetically Gifted, some of us have trouble with feelings talk. And, um... There are obvious benefits to to dating a telepath there, as as with, you know, having trouble asking people out. It gets past a lot of the complications and a lot of the more fundamentally awkward and challenging parts of developing interpersonal relationships. On the downside, it creates a situation where there's massive communication and thus responsibility, asymmetry in a relationship, and the pressure and skill loss that go with that, as well as privacy issues. And um, Jay, are you familiar with the concept of radical honesty? I am. Yeah, so for anybody who's not, my understanding is that essentially it's where you're honest regardless of how you think somebody's going to react because honesty is inherently virtuous no matter what. And, you know, I think I think it's such a flawed concept for so many reasons because it takes spontaneous declaration at any point as ultimate honesty, which is frankly ridiculous. Exactly. All the shitty things that momentarily go through my head, I don't mean them. I don't think they mean anything, but they happen. And if you had a telepathic partner, like, they would have to just be so patient and mature not to get really angry all the time and stuff like that. Well, they'd have to do that on a continual basis anyway. But yeah, it's the pressure on the telepathic partner to parse and contextualize someone else's thoughts and also, again, to be the primary force of communication in this relationship Um would be immense. And the the pressure on the non-telepathic partner to basically continually police their own thoughts would be tremendous. And basically, I mean, honestly, it's a massively hypothetical situation anyway. So if you've got a reasonable level of mutual understanding and control and you've found ways to work with those issues, yay, awesome, go fictional people. But um, with the parameters I've given it, it definitely, it's, it's definitely a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. You stand at a crossroad, Katie folks. Continue in the footsteps of Justin Elliott, or do your best not to repeat his mistakes. Down one path lies a predictable series of catastrophic failures and pyrrhic victories. Down the other, catastrophes and losses you haven't yet even begun to imagine. And now the mic goes to, oh, sexy Dracula. It started out so well. Candy Southern, in a sleek red dress, dramatically revealing her resurrection on the anniversary of her death. Very dramatic, very exciting. But the carnage that followed lacked sensuality. When I, Dracula, returned from the dead and sought out Michael Cutlark II, it was with a magnificent flourish of my mist-shrouded cape and a flash of my devil's eyes that left Michael's blood pumping. And when I, Dracula, rose yet again and found Applejay, the caresses of my mist form and the raw passion of my wolf form stirred exactly the right reaction. Remember, my friends, you only get one chance to make a second impression. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. 
New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con, March 14th through 17th in Seattle. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, guest expert Max Carlton of Waiting for the Trade and Welcome to Storybrooke joins us again for a close look at the only family tree as tangled as the summers is. In Maximoff Stravaganza, Blood Ties. And there's a little label on the egg that said, on the egg. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get a timestamp here because I am. What were you trying to say? On the leg. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense.